1600, page 1659, and continuing on to 1660. Revelation chapter 5. My friends, hear now the word of God. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a heart and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. We shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. My, what a, hallelujah indeed. My, what a picture. My friends, today we look for the first of two sermons, a vision of the book of seven seals. Vision of the Book of Seven Seals, Part 1. And in this chapter we see that creation worships the Lamb 
who is able to open the sealed book. Creation worships the Lamb who is able to open the sealed book. Now we know, as we've been studying this book of Revelation, that it is indeed one of the more fascinating books of the Bible. Its use of symbolism. And the different numbers, especially as we see, for example, in this chapter, the number seven, the number of perfection. But all these fantastic scenes, it's just almost overwhelming, is it not? As we go from, from one scene to another, it's kind of like, um, like an action-packed movie. You know, think of an action-packed... I mean, some movies are a little slow, and, there's, and they can build the drama and so forth, and there is an element of that. But you know, of course, like a Mission Impossible or, you know, some, some movie like that where it seems like every time you... You know, every few minutes, there's another exciting thing that has happened. And that's exactly what we have here in the book of Revelation. Now, chapters 4 and 5 form a unit. Chapters 4 and 5 form a unit. And um, uh, this, by the way, is the first part of the section of the seven seals. So each of those seals, you see, is going to be broken. Each of those seals is going to be broken. And uh, this is all part of, of going forward in terms of God's plan. The major theme, the major theme of this section is that the rule of the Father and the Son is over all creation and all events therein. The rule of the Father and the Son is over all creation and all events within it. Last time, the last couple of times, in terms of chapter 2, we had a beautiful vision of the throne of God in heaven. Uh, and God there, uh, the, the glory of God appearing and on that, on that throne and the rainbow. Remember children, the rainbow, 360 degree rainbow around the throne. Remember what color? It was emerald. It was green showing that there was peace between God and man. And, of course, we also, in chapter 4, had the, the vision of men and angels lifting up their worship together. The four living creatures, these uh, cherubim, angels, and, of course, the 24 elders representing the church. Well, we have the same thing now as we come into chapter 5. Now, today, we want to look at the sealed book and also at the Lamb, the sealed book, and also at the Lamb. So let's first of all consider the sealed book. Where was it? Well, it was with the one who was on the throne. That is to say, with the Father, God the Father. It was with the one who was on the throne. And notice where it was specifically, though. It was in the right hand. Now, some of y'all are lefties, or as we say, southpaws. Some of y'all are left-handed, and that's perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with that. But symbolically, the right hand is the one, is the, is the, the hand of power. 
is symbolic of power and sovereign authority. And it is literally, it's interesting, it's not, a, it's not just in the right, it literally is upon or on his right hand. As God is ready, as it were, to give or present this book to another. So what was this book then? Well, it was probably a scroll. You know what a scroll is? Y'all know, children, you know what a scroll is? It's, so today we have, we have books like uh, the Psalter, for example. Well, books back then were not so much that. It was more like you'd have, you have the paper and it would be rolled up. And that would be a scroll. And so that's probably the way that it was. Um, but its precise form is not that important. Notice also that it is written inside and on the back. It's written inside and on the back. And what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that everything, that, that there's nothing left to chance, if you will, and also that God is not waiting for man to make his move, and then God has to react to that. What this is indicating is that there is nothing that can be added to this book. There is nothing that can be added to this book. Nothing at all. Because God's plan is perfect and complete. And so it is written on both sides. It's written uh, on the inside and also on the back side as well. This scroll then, this book, is sealed with seven seals. It is sealed up. It is locked up, if you will. Now today, matter of fact, I, I had someone uh, hand me an envelope today that was sealed. And on the back of it was written, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the person that, was, uh, that had put the contents in the envelope had, had written his, his uh, signature on the back to make sure that seal could not be broken. Now, children, the seals back uh, two millennia ago, 2,000 years ago, would probably be with, with wax. So today, we, of course, you know what an envelope is, and you, know, you lick it, and you get that terrible taste in your mouth, right, with the glue. But anyway, you lick it, you seal the envelope. Well, back then, what would it be sealed with? It would be sealed with wax. So you take a little bit of the drippings of the wax, you seal it. And then what you might do is you might take a stamp, you might take a stamp and stamp that wax as a seal so that no one could break that seal, okay? So that's the picture that you have here. It wasn't just one of them. There were seven seals. There were seven seals. Now this book then represents God's eternal plan. This book represents God's eternal plan, his all-encompassing, his all-comprehensive decree. And it's not just a copy. Notice this is not just a copy of what his plans are. But this is symbolic of the actual living and powerful decree of God. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the book has been totally written on which points to the fullness of God's plan. Nothing's taken by surprise. He doesn't have to change his mind. 
He is the one who is directing all events from creation to the end of time. The number seven implies the perfection of God's plan. But the sealing of the book, the sealing of the book, points to the hidden or secretive nature of the divine plan, which has to be revealed. Now, I tell my students in history class at George Winnett College that we can't talk about the history of 2026. Why can't we? And they tell me, because it hasn't happened yet. That's exactly right. So we can't predict what's going to happen, can we? We don't know what's going to take place four years from now, or 200 years from now, or even tomorrow for that matter. We may be at war tomorrow. Who knows? As a nation, who knows? We have no idea what's going to happen. Okay, But God knows. And little by little, his plan, as revealed in history, is going to be revealed. The, the seals are going to be broken. Okay? So, but right now, there is a hiddenness to it. It's secret. Shh. It's secret. It's secret. And then, of course, at some point, these seals are broken and the plan is revealed. But more than that, not only is the plan revealed, but more than that, it's the idea that someone, that's with a capital S, someone, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, the seals, so that the decree will actually come into effect. That's the point. So this sealed book, of course, is it's sealed, seven seals. What was the problem? Why no one could open the book or look into it. No one could open the book or look into it. So this then is the challenge. This is the challenge. It comes from this strong angel. This strong angel. Now, let me just say that every angel is a strong creature. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, if there was an angel right here in our midst that we could see, sometimes angels do appear, usually unbeknownst to us, but if there was an angel... He would be far more powerful than you or I. They're spiritual beings, but they are powerful. But, so every angel is, is strong, but here especially he is identified as a strong angel to emphasize that, to emphasize his strength. And in his strength he was proclaiming with a loud voice. Indeed, we can say it's a voice which all the universe could hear. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Who is worthy? It goes, this challenge by the strong angel goes to all the world. Notice verse 3, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So, first of all, this strong angel is saying, you angels in heaven, can you open it? You mortals on earth, those on the earth, can you wise men in your wisdom discover the way to life? Can you college professors figure this out? 
Can you rulers, you presidents and you governors and you kings, can you, by your governing, bring about the kingdom of peace? Can you strong men bring about the kingdom of power? Can you social do-gooders bring about the kingdom of righteousness? And of course the answer to that is no. But even, notice, even the fallen angels, including Satan under the earth, that's what is being referred to here, where he says no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, the devil, Satan, the liar and deceiver, promises good things in his kingdom, does he not? As he tempted the Lord Jesus in his temptation after Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, the devil came and tempted Jesus and promised him all kinds of things, even as the devil promises these things to us. But, my friends, he cannot deliver, and he certainly cannot break the seals. So what is the response then? All creation gave a silent response. The entire creation realized that it was powerless in this matter. And that it would require a divine person, it would require someone who is God to break the seals. But in the meantime, verse 4, John, the Apostle John says, So I wept much, I cried, <coughs> because no one was found to open the book. You see, John realized that if God's glorious, redemptive purpose is to be is not carried out, if it were not carried out, if it was not put into effect, there would be no protection for God's children in their bitter trials, in their, in, including what we talked about earlier in the book of Revelation, those with the believers who are being persecuted by their enemies. But there'd be no protection for God's children in those bitter trials of persecution. Further, there would be no judgments against a persecuting world. And moreover, there would be no ultimate triumph for believers. There'd be no heaven and earth. There would be no future inheritance. Jesus' promise, as we had in our call to worship today from John 14, he's gone to prepare a place for us, would be no good. It would be not valid at all. It would not take place unless he could break the seals. My friends, we notice in this then, by way of application, that all human efforts to bring about the kingdom will fail. All human efforts to bring about the kingdom will fail. And so it's God who is bringing about his kingdom. Now he uses us to be sure. But all of our ideas about how to do it are of no, no importance. But also, we should be as concerned as John about the redemption of believers. He wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So having seen the sealed book, and John's reaction to it, we now come secondly to the Lamb. The Lamb. The one who is the overcomer. The Lamb. 
And first, in verse 5, we see the comfort that is given by means of one of the elders, one of the representatives of the church, one of these 24 representatives representing the Old Testament church, 12, the New Testament church, 12, together making 24. And so this elder then, this representative of the church, who had himself experienced the joys of redemption, says to John, weep not. Don't weep. Don't cry. Why not? Well, we see why not. Because now we have the description of this one in whom the comfort is obtained. Notice what he says here. Do not weep. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Now, that phraseology, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, recalls to mind all the way back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, Genesis chapter 49, where the blessing is being given uh, the blessing is being given uh, to the 12 sons of Jacob. And speaking of Judah, he says, verses 9 and 10, Genesis 49, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart, that is to say the the symbol of authority, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now children, I know that you know what a lion is like, so let's think about that just a moment. He's called the king of all beasts of the field. He's the king of beasts, is he not? A lion is a symbol of royal majesty and power, a symbol of royal of royalty, royal majesty and power. How many times have we seen lions represented like with regard to a king? He is a symbol, a lion is a symbol of power to be able to conquer and to subdue, to reign and to be acknowledged as sovereign. And this is in contrast to Satan, who often is symbolized by a serpent. That's true. He's also described as one who goes about as a lion seeking whom he may devour. But nevertheless, he is most often portrayed as a serpent. But here, Jesus is the lion who roars. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And also, the root of of David, the root of David, of King David of the Old Testament. Now in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 we read, there shall come forth a rod, stick, from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And again, verse 10, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, Jesse of course was the father of David, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place 
shall be glorious. Christ is here portrayed as the righteous branch and also as the root. So think like a tree, a branch, but also a root or the root. Jesus, then, is the one who would spring from the line of King David. But more than that, so not only is he a branch, but he's also the root. That is to say, he was the one who was the source of the line of David. He is the one who was sovereign. The Lord said to my Lord, as we sang from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. It was the question with which Jesus stumped his enemies in the last days of his, of his uh, time here on earth before his crucifixion. So not only was he the son of David, but he was also the Lord of David. He was the branch and also the root. And it's particularly then his nature, his dual nature as the God-man, which is highlighted by this. And so, first of all, we see that he's described as a lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. What did he do as we read it here? He is the one who has prevailed or has overcome to open the scroll. Now, that word to, or, to prevail or to conquer or to overcome is, in the Greek, it means it's a once-for-all thing. So, in other words, it's something that, that happened one time. It is once for all. And what is the, how is it that he prevailed to open the scroll? It was done at the cross. When he said, it is finished. I've taken the full weight of sin for my people upon myself. I have paid the price. I have cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it's by that means that he was able to conquer and to overcome and to prevail, as well as, of course, in his resurrection, to open the scroll and its seven seals. So that is the overcomer. But notice, that that's the way he's described. That's the way the, the, the elder says to John, don't weep, here's the lion. Here's the lion of Judah. Here's the one who is the, the root of David. Here is this powerful, majestic person. But is that what John sees when he turns to look? It is not. Notice his position here in verse 6. He says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders. That is to say, he was between the throne, John was between the throne, and the four living creatures, these four cherubim, and the 24 elders. He was among the church's representatives. He was in the midst of these angels. And what did he see? Notice, he saw not a lion. He saw a lamb. A lamb. Children, you know what a lamb is. You've seen pictures of a lamb before, the white uh, color. You know what a lamb is like. 
meek and mild, not roaring like a lion. As a matter of fact, isn't this what was said about Jesus? John the Baptist, not the Apostle John, John the Baptist said, Behold, as he saw Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And of course, we read today in Isaiah 53, those wonderful words from the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Where we read, But he was bruised, wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was, as we read in verse 10, his soul was made an offering for sin. It's a lamb. It's a lamb that he saw. And John was probably surprised by the sight of a lamb. I dare say that you and I would have been surprised as we heard that it was the lion that was there. But instead, John, as a matter of fact, John probably thought that it would be the lion who would be able to open the book. But notice, my friends, that Christ overcame by sacrifice, not by might. By sacrifice, sa sacrifice, not by might. Notice how the lamb is described. He stood, a lamb, as though it had been slain. As though it had been slain. It had been killed. But notice, even though it was as if slain, it was still standing. For Jesus, in the final analysis, did not succumb. He did not remain in the grave. Yes, he died. But he did not remain in the grave. He came through the ordeal. He was raised from the dead. And then eventually was ascended to glory. Notice also here. Not only is he a lamb as though it had been slain, but he had seven horns and seven eyes. Horns pointing to infinite strength. Seven horns, seven the number of perfections. Horns meaning power, strength. Seven of them, infinite strength. And seven eyes, infinite wisdom. As a matter of fact, described here as the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, meaning there aren't seven holy spirits, but rather the seven spirits referring to the fullness of the spirit. But notice what his action is. Here, the, the scroll, you remember that scroll is in the right hand of the Father. What does Jesus, what does the Lamb do? 
he takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. He takes the scroll. It's offered to him. But he also has the authority and the ability to take the scroll. Because not only, my friends, is he God, but he is the God-man. Not only is he infinite, eternal, and unchangeable as God, but he is also the God-man who has redeemed us with his blood. And on that basis, he's able to take the scroll and is able, therefore, to break the seals and to put into effect, as it were, God's eternal plan. This, of course, is the coronation of Jesus at the time of his ascension, his coronation. In Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 2, Hebrews, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. You remember what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and following, who being in the form of God, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see the coronation of Jesus. Same in Daniel chapter 7, same theme as well. So two points of application now as we close. Number one, let me call upon you to affirm and to agree that all human efforts to bring about God's kingdom or to bring about a paradise on earth will fail. The United Nations will not bring peace on earth. And let me get more explicit. Let me step on a few toes here. The United States of America is not mankind's best and last hope on earth. It is, the, it is the kingdom of Christ. It is his church, you see, that proclaims the gospel of Christ. Through which all nations someday will bow the knee, something which we have not done. We are in rebellion against King Jesus, and we have increased our rebellion against King Jesus in recent days. Our leaders don't even know how many genders there are. <laughs> apart from the fact that their, their hands are bloody with 
the babies that have been slaughtered, millions, more than 50 million babies that have been slaughtered, does not that blood cry out from the ground? Apart from the fact of sexual immorality and impurity and perversion, even teaching children to rebel against their God-given roles. The Lord is not pleased with us at all. We are ripe for destruction. If we go to war against Russia, we could very well be defeated. And rightly so. The Lord Jesus would be totally righteous in destroying us. The United States of America is not mankind's best and last hope on earth. But there is a hope. And it is found in Jesus and his kingdom. But remember then, secondly, remember that the atonement of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, is at the heart of the coming of the kingdom. It's at the heart. This is what it's all about. It's not social do-goodism. It's not how to uh, renovate society. Although there are effects to the gospel, to be sure, but that's not the focus. There is a heavenly and salvation-oriented nature to the kingdom. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. And therefore, by remembering the atonement of Christ at the heart of what this is all about, therefore, my friends, learn to embrace. Learn to love. Learn to submit to. Learn to trust in the one who is not just the lion, but the one who is the lamb who was slain. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And now, our Father, we pray that this message would be applied to our hearts. We pray, Father, that the Lord Jesus, as he has taken all power and authority unto himself by thy grant, by thy decree, Lord, we pray that increasingly Jesus' reign would be seen throughout our world. Give us the grace of God to participate in that as we proclaim the gospel and as we live our lives as shining lights to a wicked and crooked world even, Lord, to a wicked and crooked city of Atlanta. Give us the grace, O oh Lord, to do that and to see thy glory and to see, it, to see it manifest in this hour, in this place, and, Lord, in our lives and throughout this week and throughout this year. Glorify thy name. Glorify the name of thy Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.